If I can have you all grab your Bibles, and we'll be turning to the Gospel of Matthew. And we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 22. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, and we'll be reading from verses 15 through 22. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Please bow your heads in prayer. Lord, you are our God, and you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We're reminded in our current times that even the most powerful men in the world, who have the power to command nations, are still at the mercy of your mighty hand. The universe exists because your voice commanded it into existence. And we have life because you breathed it into us. And our very lives and our very souls are sustained by your sovereign will. We are created beings. And we were created for the sole purpose of bringing glory to your name. You alone are deserving of our lives and of our praise. So today, as we're gathered together as your people, we acknowledge you as our creator, as our Lord, as our God, And we give you the thanks for who you are and what you have done. Father, we remember that you are a God who loves your people and desires the best for us. Even when the best involves taking us through the hardship and the difficulty and seasons of walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Because that is the path of following you. We lift up those who are suffering. It's difficult to escape the reality that life is hard for many right now. We pray for the president and the first lady and for many of the White House staff who have tested positive for COVID-19. May you provide a quick and full recovery for them. But we ask this, that this may also serve as an unavoidable reminder to them and to all that no amount of political power can overcome their human frailty. And the fact that they do not have a sovereignty that is absolute May they be forced to acknowledge that there is only one whose sovereignty and authority is absolute, and that every man, from kings and those who are in high positions to the lowliest among us, everyone will one day have to answer to you. Our lives are not in our control, and we are reminded that at any moment, our lives might be taken from us, or you may return in an instance in the twinkling of an eye. Lord, we ask that you would turn the hearts of those at the highest levels of government, not that their kingdom is your kingdom, and it never will be, 
but you establish your own kingdom. So we ask and pray that you would turn them so that we might be able to live peaceful lives, godly and dignified in every way. Lord, we know that it's not only those in Washington who matter. People from every walk of life have been affected and are currently battling sickness. Lord, we pray the same for them, that you would grant healing and recovery, but more than physical healing and recovery, we also ask that you would provide eternal healing and recovery. Our earthly lives will come to an end, but there is an eternity that awaits us all. And only those whom you redeem through your Son will experience an eternity in your house. We pray for everyone who has been infected by COVID, that it might bring about the gift of repentance and faith in their lives for those who don't have that yet. But Lord, we also know that it isn't only those who are sick that are suffering. Those who are close to them are suffering as well. Even many within our own midst have lost loved ones or seeing loved ones whose health is deteriorating. And Lord, as we grapple with the frailty of human life, may you bring a comfort to them that though the pain is real, it is temporary. And for those who know you, they will receive bodies one day that are not subject to the curse of sin. But for those who don't know you, may you bring a greater sense of urgency that their souls hang in the balance and only the light of your gospel can save them. And for those of us who have loved ones who are perfectly healthy, we also pray that we would also not be deceived that there is any less urgency for them as anyone's life might be demanded at any time. And today, not tomorrow or someday, is the day of salvation and repentance. Lord, though many of us would rather that things go back to normal, there is much good that you are accomplishing in the lives of your people. And I ask that you would help us to see with eyes of faith. For many of us, you have exposed our sinfulness, idolatry, selfish heart, an unloving heart. For others, you have brought about an opportunity to exercise their gifts and love one another in the body. And still others, you have stretched beyond our comfort zones and call us to depend on you rather than our own strength. In the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of wildfires and social and political unrest, joblessness, these are what you are working out for good. And the... Because of these things, you are worthy of our thanks and our praise. Lord, I pray for the churches that are meeting in your name today, including but not only ours. May you protect them and give them your peace and assurance that can only come to those who walk in obedience to your word. Though the world may sneer, pleasing our king is our joy and confidence. I pray for those who you have appointed as leaders of these churches that their lives would be transformed by your gospel and that they would lead your church with humility and in holiness, remaining true to the words that you have given your church. May you pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.
to celebrate Christ's word and his goodness and his grace in our hearts and lives. What a joy it is to consider that the work that is done in us is not our work, but it's the work of the living word. Well, this morning we are leaving, sad to me, we're leaving the Old Testament If you know me, you know I'm an Old Testament guy in some ways. But uh, we're leaving the Old Testament and we come to the New Testament as we continue our uh, fall sermon series on God's high calling for His church. God's high calling for His church. And this morning we return to the God-breathed words of the Apostle Paul's epistle uh, to Timothy, the first epistle to Timothy that was written by the Apostle Paul towards the end of his life and his ministry around, we believe, 62 to 64 AD. A letter that was written to Timothy, the Apostle Paul's true child in the faith. The one whom the Apostle Paul had appointed as the leader and the lead pastor of that famed church in Ephesus. And this is the epistle and letter which we began studying together this summer and the elders and deacons began to take us through and which we are now walking through in greater detail on our Logos midweek Bible study. And you'll recall the historical context or occasion, the the circumstances maybe we can say that God used to bring this letter about um, was really the Apostle Paul's absence at the church. He had wanted to come there, he had wanted to minister there, but he was unable to get there. And there was a problem, as God uses many times in our lives, problems to do mighty and great works in our lives. And that is because the gospel and the church and ministry is not about us and our work, it's about Christ's perfect work and word in our lives. And so the Lord frequently will use Challenges, trials, and problems. You want to see the antidote to the prosperity gospel, you just go and look at the Apostle Paul's life. You couldn't ask for a godlier man. And you could not ask for a life that was filled with more adversity and hardship and plan B, C, D, E, and F as he would go to one place and storms or trials or challenges or people trying to lynch him would swerve him and he would end up in a different place. And yet all of it was part of God's sovereign and perfect work in his life. And if it was not for those trials in his life, brothers and sisters, we wouldn't have these letters. These letters are a blessing to us because Paul had to write what he would have preferred to say in person. And uh, 1 Timothy is no exception. And the occasion and the circumstances that arose that 
served as perhaps God's stimulus for the writing of this letter were actually heartbreaking for the Apostle Paul. And as we go through life, we see that the Lord uses heartbreak in our life. But he does so to celebrate God's goodness and his sovereignty and his work in Christ. And the heartbreak that was happening was that there was a worship battle that had erupted in the church in Ephesus. This church that the Apostle Paul had helped to plant, this church uh, that was in many ways the lead church in Asia Minor, this church who the Lord had brought the Apostle Paul together to mentor the elders of that church, and those elders had wept when the Apostle Paul had previously left. Well, in his absence, a worship battle and a leadership battle breaks out in this church in Ephesus. And as all worship battles do, it affected every aspect of church life. What was to be taught in the church? Who was to lead in the church? Who was to speak in the church? Were women to speak? Were men to speak? What were their roles to be? And at the heart of these things, if we're to summarize it together, all of them fall into the category of these Perhaps two simple questions. See if. How are we as believers to conduct ourselves in the house of God? Or another way of putting that is how are we to worship? How are we to conduct ourselves? How are we to behave ourselves in the household of God? How are we to worship? And this, brothers and sisters, is not, uh, let's say, a new question. This is a question that has refined the church, shall we say, over the entirety of its existence. And it's a question that we are still wrestling with to this very day, especially during this season of shelter in place and COVID-19. Should we gather in person? Should we sit indoors or outdoors? Should we wear masks? Should we obey the government? Should we have a children's ministry? What should we teach? Where should we teach it? And the list goes on and on. Should we gather together in one another's homes and break the law and visit with those who are not immediate household or family members? All of these are questions that come together and say, ultimately, how are we to worship the Lord? How are we to conduct ourselves as the household of God? And as we come to 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16, the Apostle Paul explains to Timothy the reason he is writing the entirety of this letter is to address this very question. How are we to conduct ourselves in the household of God? How are we to worship? And what's worth noting, as we'll see in a few moments as we read through this text together, is that to answer this question, the Apostle Paul does not point Timothy to the places we typically go to for answers. He does not point Timothy to a politician or a pastor or a physician or the government or family members or a famous church in Los Angeles in Sun Valley. He points Timothy to the one person who is frequently forgotten in our debates, 
and in our decisions, and dare we say in our disagreements on how we do church. He points, Timothy, to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he points, Timothy, to Christ's high calling for his church. And brothers and sisters, even before we begin, that is where we need to look. And that is what we need to consider every time we wrestle with all of these issues. Where, brothers and sisters, is Christ in it? Wear a mask, don't wear a mask. Where is Christ in that? Sit inside, sit outside. Where is Christ in that? And that's not to condemn or indict. What I'm saying is, where do we look to and who do we look to to understand how we're to behave and how we're to conduct ourselves and how we're to honor and glorify the Lord? Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Timothy 3. And we will read just two verses, verses 14 through 16. 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This and these are the God-breathed words of our Lord. Okay, I'm a little bit behind in my PowerPoint. That's why I'm pausing here. If you were to invite me to your home, and you would say the typical statement that many people do, make yourself at home, Pastor Mark. Make yourself at home. Even though you would say that to me, I would still probably offer to take my shoes off at your front door. And even if you said, make yourself at home, I would probably decline from going into your refrigerator, using your shower, taking a nap in your bed, eating your bowl of porridge. And I would probably refrain from moving the pictures around and moving the furniture in your home in the way that pleased me. Why would I do that? Well, because I'm working under the assumption that this is your home. That you have a reason for the way you have arranged your place. And even though you say, make yourself at home, Pastor Mark, which is a kind and gracious thing, there are still some boundaries and still some lines there. That there is actually a way in which you would like me to conduct myself in your home. That you care about how people conduct or behave themselves in your home. Well, brothers and sisters, as we come to God's word and we come to 1 Timothy, the Lord shows us, guess what? He cares a lot about his house and his household. And he also cares a lot about how we conduct ourselves and behave ourselves in his house. Even more so than the average person, he cares And why does he care? Because he is our Heavenly Father. 
And good fathers care about the conduct and behavior of their children. This brings us to our first point this morning. God cares about the way we behave in his house. God cares about the way we behave in his house. I know it sounds obvious. All right? But, brothers and sisters, how often when we walk through these doors do we consider what is the way I walk and talk and do and shoe, so to speak, are these things pleasing to the Lord? This is His house. This is not my house. Well, from the beginning, God has always loved and led His people with His Word. And in His Word, the Lord has always shared with His people what He really cares about. Do you want to know what the Lord cares about? All we have to do, brothers and sisters, is open up our Bibles, Bibles and read. And do we want to know what God cares about with regards to our conduct and how we behave in his house? Well, the Lord has spent an incredible amount of time through his servants writing out in detail his cares and his concerns. And as you read both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you think of our walking through the Psalms of Genesis, it's not hard to see that the Lord cares a lot about how his children behave in his house. And in verse 14 through 15, the Lord shows Timothy and us the reason the Lord has had the Apostle Paul write the entirety of this epistle, an entire epistle devoted, is for this very thing. So that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And when the Apostle Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, At the beginning of the verse. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay. He's pointing out to Timothy. This concern about our behavior and our conduct in the house of the Lord. Is so important to the Lord. It is so urgent. It is so top priority. That it cannot wait until Paul shows up and arrives in person. Even though that's his Preference. The elders know this and are familiar with this. There's many times where there are things that we would rather say to you in person. And yet, for the sake of what is right, things come by virtue of an email or a communication or perhaps it's a text because it is so important and so urgent. It cannot wait till we have that opportunity to see one another face to face. And Paul is saying, these things that I'm writing to you, they are so important. They are such a priority to the Lord and to you. They are so essential. It can't wait. I need to write this letter. And what are these things that are so necessary and essential for God's people to know? We have them listed here on our PowerPoint. It's basically everything that the Apostle Paul has written in this letter. Excuse me. They are the commands of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Excuse me. And these are the things that we have previously heard and that the elders and deacons have preached through. What are these things that they need to know? Well, the first is how Christ Jesus says we are to lead and teach in God's house. How Christ Jesus says we are to lead and teach in God's house. How Christ Jesus says we are to handle God's word and prayer in God's house. How Christ Jesus calls men and women to fulfill 
their distinct and complementary God-given roles in God's house. How Christ Jesus calls his people to love and care for one another in God's house. Brothers and sisters, these are the things that God cares about in his house. And it's worth stopping and saying, are these the things that we care about when we gather together in God's house? Is it our primary burden and concern? Not only what is taught, but how it is taught. Is our primary concern the roles that God has given to us as men and women and how they're distinct, but they're meant to complement one another? Is our concern not just what we do, but the way in which we do it and how we love and care for one another? Well, it's worth noting in verse 15, the Apostle Paul does not say, I am writing these things so that you may know what to do. He doesn't say that. He's not giving us, brothers and sisters, a checklist of what needs to happen in the church. We need to pray. Check. We need to sing two songs before the service. Check. We need to have an offering at the back. Check. We need to shepherd our children. Check. We need to love our wives once a week and have a devotional and Bible study. Check. He's not saying, I'm writing this to you so you know what to do. Look at it very carefully. He's saying, I'm writing these things so that you may know how one ought to behave. And that word how refers to the manner and the way one ought to behave. The manner and the way one ought to behave. And that word behave comes from a Greek word that refers to the direction of your life. The steering of your ship, if you will. And the language that Paul's using is pointing out, brothers and sisters, that God is not just concerned with what you do. The elders will tell you one of the things that drives us crazy is when there's a problem in the church or there's a conflict or there's a disagreement and the person says, well, just tell me what you want me to do. Pastor Mark, just tell me what you want me to do. But when we come here and the Apostle Paul is writing by command of God and Jesus Christ, He's writing to tell them how they are to do these things. And that idea of how you steer the ship, the idea of the manner and the way in which you do. And he's showing that God is not just concerned, brothers and sisters, with what you do. He's concerned about the way in which you do it, how you do it. He's concerned about the manner. He's concerned about the motivation. He's concerned about the direction of our action and where it is going to take us. The problem in Ephesus, as we read through that first chapter, this idea of false teachers, the problem was not that the false teachers did not read their Bibles. They did. The problem was not that the false teachers didn't pray. They probably did. The problem was not that they weren't teaching from the Bible. They did. The problem, brothers and sisters, as Paul points out, was their conscience, the motive of their hearts, where this was coming from. The problem was the manner and the motivation and the direction of what they were doing. Jonathan Edwards would make this point frequently. And he made it because during the great revivals, there were many people who were zealous and hot and on fire for the Lord. But over time, many of them were shown to be false. 
And they were shown to be false by the direction of their life that ended up becoming incredibly destructive, not only for themselves and others. And seminary is a testimony of that over and over again, of many men who have been equipped greatly with the word of the Lord. And yet their lives were destructive because the motive and the manner and the way they did it was contrary to the heart and the spirit of Christ. And that is exactly what was happening with these false teachers. And so God graciously comes in and provides this letter so that we would know how we ought to behave in the household of God. And as we continue to read through the New Testament, we see, well, this was something that the church in Ephesus struggled with. Because when we get to Revelations 2, 4, what is it specifically that Christ holds the church of Ephesus accountable for? That they had left their first love. Many things on the checklist, brothers and sisters, that you can pat yourself on the shoulder. Did short-term missions. Was trained here. Did this, did that. Brothers and sisters, there's no amount of training that serves as a substitute for a love for Christ that comes from a heart that has been broken by Christ and been made new by the blood of the Lamb. Now, maybe this sounds like overkill, brothers and sisters, but let's be honest about it. In our homes, in our marriages, in our work, how often are we driven by a checklist life? And as long as we are able to check that list off, had the devotions with my kids, woke up, got them breakfast, yada, yada, yada. My spiritual life is good. How's your spiritual? I read my Bible today, Pastor Mark. But brothers and sisters, did you remember your first love? Well, when the Apostle Paul says to Timothy in the church in Ephesus, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. He uses a word, that word ought in Greek, is a word that means necessary, essential, non-optional. It refers to an obligation or a responsibility. And the point the Apostle Paul is making to Timothy is there is only one right way to do things in God's house. And that one right way is God's way. It's not our way. That was the problem with the false teachers. They were doing everything, but they were doing everything their way. It was about them. It was man's way. And it was obvious because all the attention was going to them and their teaching. And it was being pulled away from the focus on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul is making it clear, listen, this is not, oh, well, that's what you think you should do. This is a preference issue. You decide what you like. I'll do what I like and we'll both disagree. No, there is one right way, brothers and sisters. There is one right way that things are to be done. And this idea of ought means that we have an obligation and a responsibility To God and to one another. If indeed we are a child of God. That's an if. If indeed we are children of God. We have an obligation to God and to one another. To do things God's way. Not Pastor Mark's way. Why is that? Because he's our father. Because he sent his son to die for us. Because we belong to him. Because we are part of not our church. We're part of His church. 
Because the church, brothers and sisters, is God's household. And we, if we are children of God, we are part of his family. And this, brothers and sisters, is our high calling. This brings us to our second point for this morning. God's house is the church of the living God. God's house is the church of the living God. There's a picture up there, and that's a picture from our baptism last year, where we did our baptism at another church. Brothers and sisters, if you were a guest at the White House, I suspect you'd dress and behave a little bit different than those times and moments you've come over to our house to babysit or hang out. Why? Well, the reason's obvious, because my house is not the White House, right? I'm certainly not the President of the United States of America. But if we take that analogy one step further, if you were part of the White House staff, I suspect you would dress and behave differently. And I suspect most of you would not complain or find it a burden to do so. Because to be a member of the White House staff in America is considered to be a very high gift and privilege that many seek after, but few are able to do. Special places and special callings carry special obligations and responsibilities. And that is because special places and special callings stand for something special. As we come to God's word and we hear from the Apostle Paul, for God's people, there is no place in all creation that is more special, more important, more beautiful, and more holy than the house of God. Brothers and sisters, that's what we spent several weeks going through the end of Psalm 23. And hearing David's testimony, the place he desires to be, where he wants to spend all his life. And for David, part of the challenge was he was a king. He was not a priest. And because he was a king, he was able to go under certain circumstances, but only the priests typically were allowed to live and be and serve in the house of God on an ongoing basis. So when David writes about dwelling there forever, he is probably thinking as far as eternity The longing of his heart, even as the king, was to be in the house of God. And there was no greater calling, clearly, than to live and serve in the house of God. Brothers and sisters, we take our families for granted. I take my family for granted. That's a sad thing because of the fall. But do we ever stop and consider? And do we hold in high esteem the house of God? That this, our ability to gather, is the greatest and highest privilege that will ever exist throughout eternity. Why? Why is it such a big deal? Why is it such a big privilege? It's because from the beginning, by God's design, the house of God was something infinitely greater and more wonderful than just a gathering place for worship. Frequently, that's how we think of the house of God, a place where we gather to worship. Think about that statement. Church, that's where we gather to worship. 
And what's the emphasis and the focus? That's on us. And when we think of it that way, and brothers and sisters, I think of it that way too. I'm just sharing with you how we tend to think. We think in a very man-centered way. And what that does is it reduces the house of God to a community center. Sunnyvale Community Center, nonprofit, gathered together for weddings and festivals and events. But as we come to God's word, the house of God was something infinitely greater and more wonderful than that. The house of God was both the holy dwelling place of the one true God, but it was also the visible display of God's glory and his word in this world. The visible display of God's glory and his word in this world. The house of God represented God. It represented everything that he is. It represented his word. And like the White House, and like the American Embassy or an American Consulate, the house of God is more than just a building, brothers and sisters. The house of God, even in the Old Testament, was more than just the temple or the tent. The house of God was also a household filled with servants and staff that were there to serve and represent the Lord. So this idea of house carries with it the notion not only the place where the Lord dwells, but also the household and everything that was in it. The table, the sacred utensils, the priests, the altar, the sacrifice. All of these things were considered to be part of the house or the household of God. And all of those things in the household of God had an order and a design that was given by the word of the Lord. And it was a living, dynamic, and breathing organism or entity. And it had its own economy that was different from the world. That word economy comes from the Greek word oikos, which means house. Oikos theo, the house of God. The idea is that every house has an economy. It has a way in which it is run. And that economy, brothers and sisters, in the house of the Lord was the economy of God and his truth and his grace, not the economy of the world. And we've talked about that in past sermons. How in the economy of the world, you come and you bring your sacrifice and you scratch God's back and then you have great crops and great families and your kids get into, I don't know, engineering school and they get to work for Google and wherever else, right? That's the way of the world. But the economy of the house of God is that God dwells here. He does not tolerate sin and yet in his love, he provides for us a feast and a washing and a cleaning and an anointing and a blessing so that those he loves can draw near to him and they can be part of his family. By God's design, the household of God is a living celebration of God's glory and the truth of his word. And in verse 15, the Apostle Paul reminds Timothy in the church in Ephesus... This is what you are now. This is your identity. This is who you are. You are no longer slaves of the world. You are the household of God. You belong entirely to him. Your marriage belongs to him. Your money belongs to him. Your college degree and your diploma belongs to him. Your time and what you do. From 11 o'clock at night till 2 in the morning, that belongs to him. 
You are now the household of God. As promised in His Word, God's Spirit and His Word no longer dwells in the Old Covenant temple or tent. By God's grace, His Spirit and His Word dwells in you. And the place that God lives and displays His glory is now the New Covenant Church, the Ecclesia, the assembly or gathering of the living God, as opposed to the assemblies and gathering of all the false gods that we worship. Sunday is football. I enjoy football the same as the next person. But brothers and sisters, football, it's a gathering for false gods. Let's be honest about it. Our workplace, God has called us to be missionaries in our workplace. But let's be honest about it. What exactly are we worshiping and laboring for? We're either worshiping or laboring for Christ. Or we are worshiping and laboring for a false god. And Paul is reminding Timothy and through Timothy, the Christians in Ephesus, listen, when you gather together, wherever that may be, it could be in a prison cell. It could be in someone's home. It could be in the catacombs under persecution, wherever you're meeting, where two, what we read, and three are gathered in the name of Christ, where the Spirit and the Word is filling and transforming lives. This is the household of God and the dwelling place of the Most High and Living God. Brothers and sisters, that is a high, high calling. The Apostle Paul reminds Timothy that the house of the Lord is now not a house that is built of stone, but it's a house that is built of lives that have been redeemed and transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ. And because of that, it's a house that belongs entirely to our Lord and Savior. And it's to Him that we are called to represent and serve together the One who has saved us from our sin. At the end of verse 15, the Apostle Paul explains how the church is to do this. He points out very specifically what the calling of the church is. The church is to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. The church is to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. The church is to be a living structure that is built by God, that displays and defends the truth of God's Word. Now many folks, you know when they hear that phrase, the pillar of the truth, and many commentaries talk about the history in Ephesus, where they had one of the seven wonders of the world. And they had that seven wonder, one of the seven wonders of the world was the temple that was devoted to Artemis or Diana, filled with all these pillars, this huge massive structure that people would come from around the whole world in order to visit and see in ooh and ah, and look at that and say, great is Artemis of Ephesus. Okay? And... That was what fueled the economy. And that was one of the things that made the city of Ephesus great, is everybody was coming. And in those days, temples were the equivalent of sports stadiums. That's what ran your economy. And that may well have influenced the Apostle Paul in his writing of this statement. However, in the Old Testament, when the Lord 
first gave the children of Israel after they had come out of Egypt. And he had made them his own. And he gave them the house of the Lord. And the house of the Lord at that time was a mere tent. The Lord's glory was present in that tent. And actually in front of that tent of meeting. With a pillar of cloud by day. And a pillar of fire by night. And the pillar was a visible display of the presence and the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, you are not just a crutch or a support for the truth. The church is meant to be a visible display of the presence of a living God. A visible presence of Of the living truth and word of God. Such that anybody who walks by or spends time. Says there is something supernatural and extraordinary. And different and otherworldly in this place. I had a medical partner who I worked with who grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home. And he went through a difficult divorce. And during that time of his divorce, he would spend most of his leisure time, not only with me, but every church event that we had or gathering at my home, he would come over to spend time not only with me, but those other men from the church and from my Bible study during that season when he was going through a very rough and difficult patch. Why did he do that? There were plenty of wealthy physicians he could have spent time with and gone playing golf with. I would like to think it is the testimony and witness of those believers who I spent time with that that was a safe place and that there was a testimony and a belief and a grace and a kindness that existed there that that man warmed to during that time when everything in the world was being taken away from him and everything was ugly. The living presence of the Spirit of God, brothers and sisters. The pillar of the truth, but also the buttress of the truth or the foundation of the truth. The idea of a buttress is the idea or a foundation is a defense or something that is immovable. It's the idea that we do not just display the living presence and the truth of God. Brothers and sisters, we are a defense, a bulwark, a fortress, a guardian, immovable on the truth. Now, when you think of these two things and you go back and recall what we were taught earlier by the elders and deacons, why is Paul making such a big deal about how the word of the Lord is handled in the church? Why does the... Apostle Paul make it a premium or so important about who is teaching in the church and what is being taught. Why does he command Timothy, Timothy, you need to stay and you need to charge certain men not to teach a different doctrine. You need to go out there and correct these men, Timothy. Well, is that the way in love of Christ? Well, when the doctrine that is being taught and the way it is being taught is taking you away from Christ and is going to damn you, it is love, brothers and sisters. It's a premium. 
And as you look at the life of Jesus, you see that Jesus did not mince words with those who were teaching or who were living a false doctrine about the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the calling of the church is to be a pillar and a buttress for the truth of God. And we have to ask ourselves, what is on display in our lives? What do we stand for as a church? By extension, your marriage. What does your marriage display and stand for? Our parenting. What does my parenting stand for or display? Does it show that I've got a checkbox that I'm doing everything that the Christian culture is supposed to do? Theology, check. Homeschooling, check. Catechism, check. Or is my life a display and a defense of the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Because that is the truth that the Apostle Paul is talking about. And this brings us to our final point for this morning. The church is the gospel made visible. The church is the gospel made visible. Now I'd like to say that this is my fabulous tagline, but I I stole or snagged it, depending on how you want to look at it, from Mark Dever. But I believe he cribbed it and took it from the Apostle Paul. Because that's very much what the Apostle Paul is going through here in this passage. The Apostle Paul here in verse 16, as we get to verse 16, is showing that the truth that our lives are to display, and the truth that our lives are to defend and stand for or represent, that when your co-workers see you, they know what you stand for. That truth is the good news of Jesus Christ, His perfect person and His perfect work. Because that's what He's talking about in verse 16. The Apostle Paul starts this verse by saying, Suddenly, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And those who were in the city of Ephesus would have been familiar with the statement, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It was one of the taglines that people went and shouted and talked about if you were a citizen in Ephesus about what made you proud. It's a little bit like what some of you people from Los Angeles will be talking about this evening. Great are the Lakers. Or however it goes. It's why we wear shirts and jerseys. The truth is, this is nothing new. Everyone wants to be part of something greater than themselves. Everyone wants to be part of something great. That's why we go to college. That's why we get great degrees. That's why we try and work at Facebook and Google and Apple and wherever else we try and go to. It's why we wear sports jerseys on Sundays and shout for our teams. We're not playing. Why are we getting excited? There's something in the human heart, brothers and sisters, that desires to be part of something greater than ourselves. And why is that the case? Because in the beginning, brothers and sisters, God made us in His image to be like Him and to be part of His creation and part of His world and part of His house. But sin messed that up. Very specifically, our pride and our desire 
that this world would be about us and the greatness would be about us and the greatness would be about our work and what we do rather than the goodness and greatness and grace and truth of the God who made us. And what Jesus has done in his church and what Paul says here, great indeed we confess that we all agree what is undeniable is what is great, and this is a gift from what Christ has done to open our eyes, is what is truly great, brothers and sisters, is not the Lakers or the temple of Artemis or working for Google or Facebook or Apple or wherever else it is, or being part of Lighthouse Bible Church. What is undeniable, what is mega, what is great, is the perfect work and person of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what's great. What's great is the mystery of godliness. Mystery. What was hidden before but now has been revealed by God. Godliness, if you will. God-likeness to be like God. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world that is so unlike God. And we are seeing it every day in our news. And we spend all our lives running from it. In our jobs, our careers, our families. What do I need to do to get away from this? But what Paul does is he says, look, this is what is amazing and great. It's God's perfect work in your life in and through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And he walks through this. He was manifested in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit. He's making reference of Jesus' incarnation, that God sent Christ into the world. The eternal Son of God became a human being for you and for me. Vindicated by the Spirit, through the testimony of the Word and through the testimony of the Holy Spirit, He was affirmed repeatedly not to be just an ordinary man, but to be the true and eternal Son of God. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. Peter's going to love this. Peter's big on two or three witnesses. Well, we have the witness of heaven and the witness of earth, that it was witnessed by many, both above and below, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. This idea that Christ's perfect person and work had an impact and an effect. And Paul was saying, you are the impact, you are the effect. The fact that Jews and Gentiles are gathered together and you are no longer slaves of that temple to Artemis and that you've been set free to worship the Lord. And that you no longer live and walk as slaves of darkness, but you now resemble Christ. And Christ has drawn you near. That is proof and evidence of the scriptures being filled in your time and in your place. Taken up in glory. Brothers and sisters, what is great indeed is the presence of Christ in your life and mine. What is great indeed is Christ's perfect work in your life, brothers and sisters, and mine. What is great indeed is when Christ is on display in the local church, not your work or mine. And brothers and sisters, many times for that to happen, 
The Lord needs to take us to a season of weakness and frailty. And he needs to expose how far we fall short of his glory. So that we can begin to see that what is great is not what you and I bring to the table. Our work and our achievements. Our teaching. But what is great indeed, the miracle of the church, is Christ in us. And brothers and sisters, this is what the false teachers had missed completely. This is why when the rules of men and women get reversed and we fight over these things and we say it's about equality and rights, we're missing the point completely. Brothers and sisters, the church is not about our rights. People talk about freedom of worship. I should be free to worship with a mask, without a mask. Brothers and sisters, this is not about freedom. That might be an American thing, freedom of worship. It's not a Christ thing, brothers and sisters. What we celebrate is his perfect work and his perfect person that dwells in us, especially when we gather together in his name. Brothers and sisters, why does God care so much about how the manner and the way in which we behave in his house. It's because he loves us, brothers and sisters. It's because he sent his son to die on the cross. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters, worship is costly. It's going to cost you something. It costs God everything. His son. He gave his son so that you could be redeemed and cleaned and brought in and made a part of his household. Not so that you can carry on the way the world does, but instead that your life, your marriage, your parenting, your work would be a display of his perfect work and his perfect word in a broken person like you and I. Several months, I guess not several months, it's a while back, we had guests in our home, dear friends of mine. And one of the children uh, was bored, so they wandered around the house and they went into the unofficial Holy of Holies of the Chin household, a room with Lego set up where all the masterful and wonderful works of Lego that hours and hours had been spent on, were all beautifully positioned exactly the way their creators had wanted them. And this guest went in and decided he was bored, so he decided to take apart some of those different pieces of Lego and decided to innovate and come up with creative ideas. And as you can understand, there was weeping and gnashing of teeth after that. We were able to carry out Peacemaker Talk about forgiveness and grace. And reconciliation was had. But what was clear by what happened was that child in our home was not a member of our family. Because if you're a member of our family, you know better than to touch someone else's Lego. It's off limits. It's understood. What was clear was this other child was a guest and not a member of the family. Brothers and sisters, how often do we come into the house of the Lord 
And how often do we take the beautiful work of Christ and the order of his house that he has sacrificed his son to offer and give to you so that you can enjoy his love to the fullest? And how often do we come in to the Holy of Holies and we begin to dismantle that because somehow we think we can do better? And brothers and sisters, when we do that, what we show is that we are not children of the house. We show that we are just guests. Brothers and sisters, this was what Paul was addressing with the false teachers. Yes, they were in the church. Yes, they spent time reading their Bibles. Yes, they did that. But the way and the manner and the motive that they did it, had nothing to do with the perfect work of Christ. But instead, what they were doing is they were dismantling something precious to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we have to decide for ourselves, are we a guest or are we a child? Because as we come to the end of this, what we see, what we really need more than anything else, brothers and sisters if we are to act in a way that is pleasing to the Lord, what we need is the perfect work and word of Christ in us. Have you come to Him? And what is the direction of your life? Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, You care about how we conduct ourselves because it's a reflection of what we think of You. And it's a reflection, Lord Jesus, of whether we are simply guests in your house or if we are indeed children of the living God. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this fellowship or congregation who does not know you, who's lulled by a false assurance that perhaps by Christian training or education or familiarity with the church, They indeed know you when in fact their life is just a list of checkboxes of do's and don'ts. I pray, Lord Jesus, that they would know this day what it means to have you, Lord Jesus, work perfectly in their hearts and lives and to be made a child of God whose life celebrates your goodness, your truth, and your grace. In your name we pray. Amen.